You're listening to Coffee Talk with the Liturgy Guys. Excuse me. I happen to be passing. I thought you might like some coffee. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. Because if beer is proof of God's love for us, then coffee is proof of his mercy. Oremus, caffeine, come to my assistance. Put that coffee down. This is not a real episode of The Literature Guys. Coffee's for closes only. There's no topic that we're discussing, and we're not even talking about liturgy the whole time. Are you telling us absolutely everything? Not exactly. We're also out of coffee. <laughs> so without further ado, another Coffee Talk episode of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. Newsflash from the Mundelein campus. Okay, do we want to talk about Chris and how horrible... Oh, let's talk about Chris is the worst. See that beard he's got with the crazy mustache? He's, it was, like, a, he's like a circus freak. It was good to see him this weekend. Though. If you could see him through the beard. Although yeah. I have to say he does pull the beard off. Not at, at the end of the day, but I mean, he pulls off carrying a beard. Like a... Uh, like a Santa Claus, like a like a fake Santa, he pulls know, the beard off. But you know what's funny? In our promotional material, mm-hmm. the pictures are old, so I have a beard, and he's clean-shaven, and mm-hmm. now he has this enormous beard, and I've been clean-shaven for a long time, so we need we, some updated pictures. Yeah. Well, you uh, yeah, you haven't had a beard for like two years. But that goes with our Beard Balm sponsor, doesn't it? So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Catholic Balm Co. B-A-L-M. Uh, not, dot C-O. Not B-O-M-B. This yeah. is not a terrorist organization. <laughs> no, it is not. So Catholic uh, Balm Co, catholicbalm.co slash liturgy. If you go there and uh, purchase some things, we get a, a cut of the order. So. I don't even have a beard. I just put that stuff on my face every morning to smell like incense. Well, I told Tony Vicinda, who's one of my friends who helps. Hey, Tony. <laughs> Tony, yeah. He must be one of my people from Long Island, <laughs> Tony. And uh, he's one of the co-founders of the company. And I told him, I was like, I don't, uh, I don't use beard balm because I cannot grow a beard. But if you had hair like, bomb. like hair wax or uh, gel or whatever it is, like that I would use because I love the smell Does of he have prism. It? Well, he said they were working on it, Ooh, so I don't know. Work harder, um, Tony. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, uh, so this Young Adult Liturgy Conference that we just had was pretty amazing. Yes, it, it was the bomb. It was B-A-L-M-B-O-M-B. <laughs> That's something that was explosive. It, uh, it kind of exceeded all my expectations of what it was going to be like. And your expectations are awful, <laughs> awfully quite high. I'm, I'm an idealist. I, I think everything's just going to happen. And perfectly. I think nothing will ever work. That's why I need you to encourage me. <laughs> That's the ideal situation. Yes. Uh, you just don't know what you're going to get when you have these conferences. You don't know who's going to come, why they're going to come, and all that type of stuff. But as we had an opportunity, since it was a whole weekend, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we had m- multiple opportunities to s- just to sit down and talk to some of the people, some of you listeners that came to the conference. I had some really great conversations with a lot of you, and it was very clear that we're all kind of on the same page. We know what we, we want liturgy-wise, and we want to see more of it. We want to, we want to see it m- being more pervasive throughout all of the parishes, especially in America. And it was really cool to get to have these conversations of people that are just like, yes, I, I totally agree with what you guys are saying on the podcast and what you're doing at the Institute. And uh, at one point, uh, Dennis, I saw you and Chris talking to a group of young adults at one of our socials. Yes, I had had a headless horseman, which was one of the drinks in honor of Saint Denis after mm-hmm. our drinking with the saints lecture. 
It helped uh, grease the wheels for liturgical discussion. (laughs) It was delicious. Should have seen them banging on the table, but the general instruction (laughs) says this, darn it. So it was a pretty intense conversation? No, not really. Oh, okay. This is this lovely young woman. Uh, she had a little notebook full of liturgical questions. She was very intent on getting answers, which is nice. So she's asking me some questions, and I was like, I don't really know. So I saw Chris walking around. I was like, let me go get Chris. And he was like, what do you want? I said, come over here. And he was a little hesitant at first because I think he just wanted to relax. But once we got him going, he was like, boom, 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 question, question. So question. You just had, she just had like a list of questions? Yes. Oh, excellent. And some subtle, nuanced kind of questions that were, you know, sophisticated questions. Yeah, well, it was good for probably for her to have somebody to actually have answers to some of these things for her. One of her questions was, can the matter for the Eucharist, so the bread, can mm-hmm. it ever be licit but not valid but not licit? So Eucharist genuinely confected but not licit according to the law. So, you know, if you put honey or raisins in it, that's usually considered invalid matter. But is there ever a time when it's licit but not, I mean, valid but not licit? So we had to put our heads together. Literally? Well, yeah, we did. (laughs) There were a lot of theologians in the room, so I got a bunch of people to answer. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So maybe we'll make that a liturgy guy's question. Won't give the answer. All right. Well, it was wonderful to have, especially to have those socials after kind of the day of learning. So we had one um, on the opening day, just kind of meet people, but then kind of talk about what what we just learned uh, from Father Karchi. And then the next day, um, just kind of a full day jam-packed with lectures and courses throughout the day, and then kind of an evening at at night after a lecture from Dr. Michael Foley, Drinking with the Saints, where he talked about uh, the difference between fun and merriment. Mm. And fun is something that you can do by yourself, um, but merriment is something that requires... Um, fellowship. Company. Yeah. yeah. And, and merriment and fellowship go hand in hand. And so we were uh, hanging out and having some drinks. And our, like, merriment. And merriment, yeah. yeah. At some point, somebody just started playing the piano. And I looked over at Dr. Michael Foley and I said, hey, does this count as merriment with everybody singing around the piano and drinking? And he said, yes, this is merriment. Absolutely. So, and actually, I talked to him too, and um, he was really impressed with the idea that we would, you know, have a lecture about the liturgy of drinking, and then right afterwards, taking some cocktails from his book, Drinking with the Saints, and uh, learning something and then doing it. And I told him, I said, that's what we do at the Liturgical Institute. We, we learn something, and then we, then do, we it. do it. Then yeah. we, we, we learn about the Psalms, then we sing the Psalms. Right. We, we learn, learn about the Eucharist, we pray the Eucharist. Absolutely. We learn about booze, and then we experience the goodness of creation. And it is, uh, it is the best method by mm-hmm. which to learn, because you're fully engaged with what you're learning. And, and that so, Headless Horseman was a good drink. Two ounces of vodka, ginger ale, uh, or some kind of bitters, and uh, an orange wedge. Boy, it was it, a good summer drink. It was. I had two of them. And it was delightful. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, just really great to have all these conversations with all of these young adults who are really impassioned about a lot of the stuff that we're talking about on the podcast. I think it's very easy um, for, even though we have an outlet with this podcast, uh, to reach a lot of people, I think it's very easy for us to kind of sit here in our offices or in our classrooms and kind of think small. And we think there's just a few of us here trying to get the classes together, trying to organize conferences or... And uh, then we say 200,000 downloads of Liturgy Guys, baby. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is what we will hit with this podcast. Yes. We'll hit 200,000. 
the 200th download will get like a free vacation. To I don't Hawaii know or that I can identify that. Oh, too bad. We had that vacation <laughs> in Hawaii. We yeah, be we, able to give away. We had that that in our back pocket. I guess we'll have to find another way to give that away. Yes. But, um, but anyway, uh, I wanted to kind of hear a little bit more about. I did not go to any of your classes, so you taught Man. three classes on the liturgical I'm movement. Still sad about that. And uh, I wanted to hear about how those went. And this is a coffee talk, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because Chris isn't here. Yeah, Anytime I had a lot there. of coffee today. Yeah, so I want to know what did you talk about and what were some of the questions that people were asking you? What was kind of the interest? Well, the whole thing was kind of a thought exercise, you know, guided thought exercise about the liturgical movement as a concept. So, you know, the liturgical movement is all the ideas and lectures and thoughts about the liturgy before Vatican II does the official reform. So the question is, why were they so absorbed with this idea that liturgy needed to be reformed. And, you know, you kind of look at Vatican II and what came after Vatican II and you say, oh, well, I like the Missal, I don't, I wish they did this, I wish they did that, more Latin, less Latin, whatever. But what I find is either the, you know, the really old folks who remember pre-Vatican II liturgy have some really strong opinions and feelings about the low mass and how quiet it was and they didn't know what was going on. And Hashtag Kevin. Hashtag Kevin, right, who is one of those people. And there were people who tried hard and had hand missiles and didn't know what was going on. But for the average sort of 10-year-old, most many times their experience was saying the rosary quietly or being bored until the priest was done mumbling. And then that was it, you know. And so there was this large complaint uh, by many of the people who opened their eyes to it and said, wow, we can do better than this. And I think most people don't think about that part of liturgical reform or the missile as we have it. They just think in their own parish there's XYZ that happens and they wish it were different. But then to really step back and say, okay, what is the big picture? What's this urgent necessity for liturgical reform? And so that's what that was, that was, what that was about. So what's the problem? How do you fix the problem? Why do you need to fix the problem? And what are the fruits in daily life? And then that gives you this place to assess why we did what we did and whether we're doing it right or not. Now, when we were planning this, um, we were looking at what courses we wanted to offer for the study weekend. And I really wanted the liturgical movement to be a part of the package because I was very um, impressed or I was very, my eyes were opened a lot more when learning about the liturgical movement because mm-hmm. I always thought Vatican II was just this thing that like suddenly happened. Like and yet poof. that was the one session you didn't come to. <laughs> right? Thanks, well, I've, I've, learned, I've learned a lot about it through just our, our conversations and we did have a podcast episode about it, um, which we probably could expand upon more, but I'm, I'm really interested to, to hear about the reaction of the young adults there to this idea that there was this actual thing, this movement that caused Vatican II. And it, was, it wasn't just this random thing or wasn't just this, we're tired, so we're just going to switch things. It was, <laughs> it was, an, it was an actual thought-out yeah. process. Well, you think about when you call a meeting in your workplace or in your home or whatever, it's when something's call up. call them huddles here. In yeah, we have a little huddle. When something is up, so information needs to be given out, some problem needs to be addressed. And, you know, by 1959 or 1960, when John XXIII called it, it wasn't just like, hey, I'm the new pope and I'm bored, let's have a big meeting. It was, I'm the new pope. And he was pretty old at that time, right? He was in his 70s. People thought it was just going to be like kind of a short-term pope. Right, jolly old Pope John who would, you know, put his hand on his belly and have some good pasta and it'll be fine. But he lived through the entire 20th century. I mean, he, his childhood was at the beginning of the liturgical movement and his ascendancy of the papacy was 
kind of at the peak of it. And I think he saw some stuff needed to change. The world had changed after World War I, World War II, the Depression, mm-hmm. Cold War. A lot of things from the 19th century were never really dealt with when the church was disenfranchised and from governmental things after the French Revolution. And in, in the 19th century, they were like, oh, man, the, the governments are at, at us. Communism is at us and Marxism is at us. We're just going to bury our heads in the sand and say, you're a heretic. Here's the things you should believe or else. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't really working anymore. So the larger question was, all right, so that's over. How can we restore the world and the church through the grace of God? What's the primary way that you get that grace? Liturgy. How can we make liturgy most fruitful in the world? So that's the big, big, big picture that and I it comes down to, to active participation, right? Like being being more involved with what's happening there, not just your physical presence, but your your mind and understanding that you are fully involved with what's going on on the on the altar, but in the prayers and in the dialogues, which is not something that we had in the liturgy before Vatican II. Um, I, I think kind of some of the stuff that you were saying is it seemed like there were things happening over there and that we were observant of what was happening, but we weren't full and active. Well, not as much as we should be, right? There was, there could have been a lot of interior participation and oh, a sure, really yeah. pious person. Absolutely. You know? And if you go to a low mass, like what we call the extraordinary form now, it's very quiet. So the priest is up there. You know, maybe you know what he's doing. Maybe you don't, but you don't hear him. There's no dialogue generally. And there's a lot of time to think and pray. And the silence gives you a lot of space to to contemplate and to offer yourself to God and, and so on. Um, and that, in a sense, was you know private prayer, interior prayer. But their argument was that the liturgical prayer is not really a quiet, silent, internal prayer. It's an internal, external combination. And you're supposed to answer the priest when he says, the Lord be with you. You're supposed mm-hmm. to say, and with your spirit, English or Latin or what, whatever. And some of the, the language that they learned, I mean, some of the ideas they learned were from the Eastern churches. You know, if you go to a Melkite right now, it's constant back and forth. So mm-hmm. the deacon comes out and says, wisdom, be attentive. You know, the Holy Spirit's coming and constantly singing the words of scripture and the words of the liturgy on the people's lips, on the priest's lips. And it's, it's like uh, spiritual jujitsu. You know, you're up, down, move, <laughs> sing, speak. It wasn't kneel until the priest is done and then get communion and go home. It was a whole sort of spiritual exercise involved mm-hmm. the mind and the body and the voice and the tension. Excellent. So, uh, so you, you think this was, was, was this kind of new content for the people in the classes, you think? Or had some people actually heard of this before? Some people have heard of it. You know, the, it ranged from, you know, really quite precise questions about the liturgical movement to somebody asked me, so what, what was Vatican II? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I should have started back a little further. Um, but the idea is some people in the room were extraordinary form, uh, attached to the extraordinary form, you know, which is a permissible form of the Roman rite. And so there, some people had a little resistance. Oh, what do you mean the low mass isn't perfect? Well, I don't know if I'm really a good judge of that, but what I can say as a historian is that a lot of people in the 50s and 40s thought the low mass wasn't perfect based on the nature of the liturgy itself. And whether or not we think they were right, they were calling for reform pretty unanimously. And um, so understanding what they thought they were doing, then you can, you can look at it and say, all right, maybe some of this was guided by the Holy Spirit. Maybe this was just human desire. How do we filter it out? But uh, you can't really make a good assessment until you know what they did and why. Mm-hmm. And then you can say, all right, well, I, I was having a knee-jerk reaction to that, and ma- I see now maybe that's why they did that. And then you can nuance your assessment and, a little. And you're going to have opinions on 
you know, for and against. And, and I think um, another thing that kind of came up, uh, especially at the end of our conference, was mutual enrichment. And, mm-hmm. and what does that mean? And how do we go forward from there? But uh, I was talking to one of our, um, one of the other uh, staff members here at the, the university, and she was telling me she remembered uh, the day that she went to Mass with her family uh, after the changes had taken place, after Vatican II. Mm-hmm. And she said her dad was in tears because he he knew that he could see and experience something that he couldn't before. And so there was genuine joy um, in a lot of hearts after the, the changes because people could participate in a fuller way to their, to their perception. And then there were genuine tears from other people saying, we Wait, gave away the right, yeah. thousand years of, Where did it go? Yeah. of uh, building up the richness of the, of the ceremonial and the poetry of the Latin. And just, we'd had that that uh, podcast about Paul the sixth. I was just thinking about that. The language of the angels were giving Mm -hmm. it up that we're going to be like profane intruders, the temple of God. But he said it was necessary for this grace of the liturgy to transform the world. So he was, he talked about the pearl or the the diamond in this fancy box, you know, in Mm -hmm. the silk box and the silk box is very nice, but it's not the same as the treasure in the box. And so he wanted to get back to the treasure in the box. On the other hand, sometimes you know how important the treasure is by what kind of box it's in. You know, if you mm-hmm. hand somebody a diamond in a mm-hmm. paper envelope, they probably say, oh, that's a glass. If it comes in a box from Tiffany's and black velvet, you say, whoa, this is a real diamond and probably the highest quality. So there's always that back and forth about how much uh, of the surroundings do you need to, to uh, tell you how important what you're doing is and how much of that surrounding will get in the way of oh, doing the important thing. It's like uh, we, we talked a lot about art. In that in that episode, actually, um, and this idea of a veneer and you know a protective barrier for the art sometimes, or sorry, not veneer, varnish hmm. um, that protects the painting, but it also can discolor or d- doesn't give you the true radiance of the painting because right. it's there to protect. Right. And I kind of think about this too: is um, the Pieta in in. Uh, the Pieta. <laughs> the Pieta. Yeah. In, the, in, the, in Rome, uh, St. Peter's. And it used to be, you know, fairly open to the public. You could go right up to this. this Until some idiot hit it with a hammer. Uh, yeah. Broke so somebody poor came Mary's in, nose off. Yeah. Huh? Somebody came in and started to attempt to destroy it. So what they did is they put it now behind this glass barrier. So you can't experience that artwork as in a true way and like you used to be able to you used to be able to walk right up there now you have this protective barrier that keeps you a, a certain distance away but you know people who go there say whoa this is important i can't mm-hmm. even get close that's true to it. it's so important that's true on the other hand it keeps you far from it right so mm-hmm. there's always that back and forth if a thing you know you go to a see a, a statue outside somewhere and you know people are rubbing the feet and kids are sitting on it and throwing pennies at it and whatever you're like okay that's kind of nice but you know it's not the Mona Lisa or you know mm-hmm. whatever because people are throwing pennies at it. But what's uh, important about all of this is that, that what I saw is that we were having an educated and academic dialogue about all of these yes. issues rather than something just coming from a visceral hatred or a visceral anger or emotional place. And it was such an amazing place to have all these uh, young minds coming and having an actual dialogue and discourse about these things rather than just being online and, and somebody trolling one of your comments or anything like that. So it was a really beautiful and joyful dialogue that, that I was seeing, not just in the classrooms, but then you know outside of the classrooms mm-hmm. as well this weekend. Mm-hmm. 
And I actually got the chance to to go to Dr. Lynn Bouton's class, which I had never seen her teach before. Rub it in, Jesse. <laughs> you went to everybody's <laughs> talk but mine. <laughs> no, hers was the only one I actually went to. Um, but I'll I have, still take it personally. I've also seen you teach before, so I wanted to go to some of the classes I hadn't seen. Some of the, the I didn't faculty. want you there anyway. I believe okay. it. Anyway, Dr. Bounds, um, will you let everybody out 15 minutes early? The first? accident. <laughs> anyway, Dr. Bounds, talk. Uh, it was it was amazing. Um, so hers was uh, how many remember the name of her class? Eucharist. Uh, science or, origins and structure. Origins and structure, right? So, like, so talking about the temple origins right. of the Eucharist. So she was talking about um, the the Last Supper and then what was actually happening during Passover and what was what was um, what what the temple was for and what was going on there. And I had learned a lot about this from our conversations and just from other you know scripture scholars, but. There was definitely a depth there and a description of what was going on and connecting the uh, Last Supper and Passover in a way that I didn't know before. And some of the things that I had thought as a Catholic about Judaism and Passover that were not true. They were just misconceptions on my part. So, Or sometimes what Passover is now might not have been what Passover was in the time of Christ. Before the temples destroyed, a lot of things right. changed when the Jews which is what she was out of Jerusalem. Which is what she was talking about. What we think of Passover now is more of a developed um, practice rather than what it actually was during Christ's time. Right. And I think it's important to have that hermeneutic when you're looking at this because we hermeneutic can, you just yeah. said hermeneutic like it's a normal <laughs> word because we cannot um we cannot put our modern understanding of passover verse right up next to the last supper and hope to get any truth out of that we need to look at the passover that christ was referencing um in order to really have a true comparison so right remember some years ago they found this letter by abraham lincoln where he's talking about he shared a bed with some guy in a hotel i do not remember this but and uh everybody went kind of berserk that you know he liked men and so on as it turns out it was kind of the normal thing you know they didn't mm -hmm. have holiday inn with 100 beds in it and it was cold and basically if you were on the road and you stopped at an inn you were lucky to get a bed at all and you sometimes had to share it and if you don't understand that then you mm -hmm. can interpret it whatever way you want but the same thing goes with anything. You have a, a record or a text evidence. You know, what is the proper way to understand that? It's really, really important. Absolutely. So, so that was really great, and I um, definitely heard some really great feedback about Father Bema's class, uh, East and West, Liturgies East and West, which was great. And then, of course, nobody talked about Chris's because it was horrible. Yeah, he's the worst. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, Chris talked about uh, Liturgy and Music, not as a not as a uh, director of music for a parish, but just the theology behind the importance of music, which I thought was pretty great. Mm -hmm. So we, we, I noticed that a lot of music directors or musicians came, so maybe we would uh, actually have some actual liturgical music courses next year, which I think would be great. But, but all in all, I think it was a, a fantastic weekend, and I think I had some really great conversations with people, and we, we sent out um, a survey afterwards and 40%, more than 40, 45% of the people responded, and they gave us some really great feedback, which is great because that helps us plan everything for next year. Which brings me to my next point, Dennis. Yes. Next year's conference. Yes. So if you did not go to this conference and you're feeling uh, severe FOMO, 
Do you know what that is? That is? Well, I would call it fo- fear of having missed out. Yeah. <laughs> However you say that. FOMO with an H. FOMO. Yeah. Uh, fear of, I like that. Yeah. Fear of having missed out. If you have FOMO and uh, you feel like you missed out on an amazing opportunity, next year's conference is the July 12th, 13th, and 14th. 2019. We had some folks say they didn't want to come this year because it was Father's Day weekend, which we didn't think about when we planned the date. So we next can, year, <laughs> you can have your time with your dad, and then you can bring your dad to the thing if, yeah. he's, if he's a young adult. Absolutely. Yeah. That would be kind of two young adults, father and son. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll bring Isaac next year. Sure. Well, I bet he'll enjoy it. But uh, it, was, it was really great. I am looking forward to growing this next year. And then another interesting opportunity came out of this whole thing as well. We're still trying to figure out this whole young adult conference thing and, you know, having a study weekend versus a one day conference and what, what they do and uh, the impact. We've totally figured it out now. We have totally figured it out. We have all the answers, um, perhaps. But uh, what came out of it is a couple people have approached us, actually, about having a young adult liturgy conference at their parish and or diocese. And we have talked about it, we've discussed it, and we decided that it's something that we can do. It's what we call bringing the Liturgical Institute to you. And if you're interested in bringing Dennis and Chris out for a one-day conference, um, this would be the Young Adult Transfigured Conference. It would be a one-day thing at your parish or diocese. Uh, Please let us know. You can email me at uh, questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet at us at liturgyguys. But we'd be happy to... Uh, facilitate this. If you, if you see a need for you know, liturgical academic information coming to your diocese or parish. Or practical information. Or, yeah, practical information. Actually, and that's kind of Chris's bread and butter. He's really good at the practical. And who doesn't want bread and butter? Oh, mm. man. Mm-hmm. He's the bread and butter. You're the meat and potatoes. Together, it is a meal. I'm the chili pepper. And I haven't figured out what I am. Yeah. Probably the glass of water. Uh, people say I'm a tall drink of water. That's what people say about me all the time. <laughs> I, I think I've heard that somewhere. <laughs> but let us know. Tweet us, email us, whatever. We'd be happy to come out there. Uh, if you weren't able to get a group to come out to this or you value the information and want to do some type of conference, let us know. We'd be happy to work with you on that. What kind of coffee did you have today? Well, I had my own French press coffee in my room in this morning. And then I went out to breakfast with a visiting priest friend, and I had just had a Cafe Mocha, and then they gave him a whole pot of coffee, and then I had more. So I gave up coffee again a few weeks ago for three weeks, and then I couldn't make it. And so now I'm back on it. And today I'm still pretty darn hypercaffeinated. Wow. You, so you had three different. Uh, three big cups, yeah. Wow. That's a lot for you, isn't That's it? That's right. It is. That's going from like zero to 60. And yeah, that was probably a good 400 milligrams of caffeine today. <laughs> I drink so much that it like doesn't truly affect me. Like I, I, I know that it, I know that I'm operating at a uh, higher caffeinated level, but it's I just drink so much of it that it's just kind of yeah, steady. Well, the first one in the morning is just to feel human. After that, it's to, to go into <laughs> what is Kevin says mode. that too. Kevin says like the first Kevin. couple. Yeah, he's well, like Kevin's old. You know, he needs coffee to get going. Yeah, he says and I'm like, getting old. So well. Coffee will get you there. You know, no five-year-old needs coffee in the morning. They just get up and run around once they shake off the sleep. Did, did I ever tell you, uh, this is not a coffee question, it is a coffee story, it's a drinking story, but my brother... Um, and you have many of those. Yes, <laughs> I have four brothers, but my next oldest brother, Jake, 
um, we had a family party, and my, my grandfather always drank vodka martinis. And he had a glass. He thought it was ice water. So he took the glass, and he, just, he was running around, and he was sweating. He just chugged this, but it was a martini. And how old was he at the time? I think he was like eight or nine. Wow. So he was T-rashed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow, you get arrested for that these yeah, days. I'm sure you could. But uh, anyway, uh, Dennis. Yes, Jesse. We have some interesting things coming up we do. on the podcast. We do? What do we do? Well, we, uh, we are going to be doing a podcast with Monsignor Dempsey. Monsignor Robert Dempsey, mm-hmm. pastor and of St. Patrick's Parish in Lake Forest, Illinois. Absolutely. And an adjunct faculty member of the Liturgical Institute. Absolutely. Really smart guy, but this comes has from... has really good hair, too. He does have good he hair. He has bishop hair all written. Yeah. Yep. He's got Monsignor and Bishop hair. Yeah. Parted on the side, always yeah. imperfectly. He's very sort of put together guy. Yes. But there are some territories where we wanted to have his expertise. And some of this comes from the... Um, the value or the, I guess, prioritization of church documents. You know, what is a, what is an encyclical versus a exhortation? You know, versus a general yeah. audience, and what is the authority and the very. Well, that's the class he teaches in our curriculum called mm-hmm. liturgical documentation and law. Right. And his his intellectual background, his educational background, is very interesting in that he. Um, He's not a liturgical theologian, but he wrote his moral theology thesis on the moral imperative to follow liturgical law, right? Mm-hmm. So he gave, gave a lecture about that a while back. But basically, liturgical law is the law of the church. Just like every other law, you're supposed to follow them or else there's a penalty, right? And so church law, liturgical law is binding under pain of sin, including liturgical law. And so there is a moral obligation to follow liturgical law. But then the question is, well, how do the laws work? Some of them operate the universal level, like a council document, but then some of them are pastoral, which is just kind of a suggestion. Some of them are dogmatic, which are binding. And how do you decide all this? And what's the Pope's own initiative? And what's an absolute rule? And so we're going to ask him to help us navigate it all that. It sounds a bit boring on the surface, but I, I'm actually fascinated with it because well, there's... If you got arrested for breaking the law and then you found out it was <laughs> optional, you want to know that. Yeah. Well, also there are some contradicting statements in different documents. And so we have to figure out which one has a higher authority to see, you know, wh- how do we actually make that a practical act in our liturgical self? Right. So we talk about Pius X's famous motu proprio trale solicitudini. God bless you. From 1903. And it's at all this stuff about music and chant and whatever. And a lot of things were inserted into law. That's what a motu proprio does. So he forbade the use of drums, for instance, or bells, or pianos. Well, guess what? We use drums and pianos all the time. So did somebody change that law? And if so, how do we know? And what's still binding about it? Is the whole thing obsolete or just parts of it? And so hopefully Monsignor Dempsey will have some answers for us. Right. So we're going to bring him in. And technically, we are officially on hiatus for our podcast with Chris. But we're still going to be doing these fun things, checking in with Monsignor Dempsey. Um, and maybe even the famous Father Dan Steele. Father Dan. Father Why Dan is he Steele. relevant to the liturgical he's, he's liturgy started, guys? Because he started this whole thing. Yeah. He asked the question that mm-hmm. had us arguing about well, actually, we kind of attacked him, Chris yeah. and I, with all kinds of answers. And then just saw attack. the light bulb go off over his head. <laughs> we need a podcast about this. So we've talked about Father Dan Steele of Richland, Washington State, many times. But we're going to bring him on, hopefully. Yeah, and he's eager to talk about the nuptial meaning of the liturgy. So we'll talk about that. And 
special, another special thing. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, the Lanky Guys. Oh, yeah. Was that this week? That right. is this yeah. week. We're going to be doing a crossover podcast with the Lanky Guys. Well, just one of them, right? Or the well, we're, uh, Father Peter Musset's going to Skype in, but Dr. Scott Powell is here Aha. to speak for the uh, Summer Scripture Conference on our campus, which you're also doing a lecture for. Yeah, don't on, remind me. It's on Friday, and it's not done yet. <laughs> uh, what are you talking about? The, Holy Spirit and Church Architecture. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I wish I knew. <laughs> Holy Spirit and Church Architecture. The theme of this summer scripture seminar is the Holy Spirit and Scripture. And on the last day, they usually have kind of lighter lectures, not so much the liturgy, I mean, the uh, scripture scholars, but somebody who sort of, sort of uh, applies it in certain ways. So when they asked me to do this a long time ago, I was like, Holy Spirit and Church Architecture, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what I would say. And they're like, oh, you have a year to figure it out or six months to figure it out. So I was like, okay, I'll come up with something. Well, now it's five days away and I'm not really sure what I'm doing, but you I have an idea. You work best under pressure, though. It's the only way I work, really. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so Monsignor Dempsey, Father Dan Steele, uh, the lanky guys who will be uh, talking with Father Peter Musset and yeah. Dr. Scott I'm Powell. kind of a lanky guy. You are a lanky guy. I'm I was, six foot one-ish and 174 pounds. I think that counts as lanky. I think, I, I, I haven't figured this out, but when I was getting ready this morning, I was trying to figure out, like, well, I'm definitely not lanky. So we'll have to figure out what we're going to call we'll that episode. We'll have to have a precise definition of lanky. Yeah, like three three lanky guys and one it's chubster. Like a height to weight ratio or something. <laughs> but if we all averaged ourselves together, because you guys are three lanky guys, we. But I'm a lanky liturgy guy. They're not a lanky liturgy guy. Oh. So I'm an L squared guy. L squared. They're just an L guy. Well, uh, anyway, so we have those three things coming I'm up. I'm sort of a cranky lanky liturgy Ooh. guy, except when I'm caffeinated, like today. Cranky lanky. I like it. Uh, so three special episodes that we're going to come out with this this uh, summer. Oh, so special! And perhaps some more uh, coffee talk. We, uh, when Never Dennis comes in and he's like, "I've had coffee," it's like the bat signal. We have to be like, it's like Commissioner Gordon's <laughs> yeah. red phone is it's ringing. Like, it's like I'll get the podcast ready. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we have to make we have to make um, the opportunities count whenever they happen. That's because, right. Because you give up coffee every uh, month or so, right? Can we talk about the Holy Spirit and church architecture? Yeah. Do, do you have something? Well, I do. It's three days from now. I better. Okay. So, well, what do you got? Well, here's the thing. People think the Holy Spirit is a dove or a fire or something, and you see a Holy Spirit dove in a painting on a wall, and they're like, oh, now we have Holy Spirit in architecture. But that's like saying, oh, we have a cross, and now we, now we have Jesus in architecture. But actually, theologically, the church building is an image of the mystical body of Christ. I mean, it's made of many members, and they're all assembled. So just like we're many members of Christ's body, the church mm -hmm. building is many members, like stones and beams and shingles and all that. Then the question is, all the scripture says, you're, God, you're, Christ, you're the body, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Do you know you're God's temple? So what does it mean when the Holy Spirit dwells in us as a member of the body? That means, what does the Holy Spirit do? Sanctifies, vivifies, interprets, allows us to see and know things. So the job, the question is, what does the Holy Spirit do for church architecture? And if the Holy Spirit dwells in the church, what does that mean? And so I'm trying to figure out if the church building is the mystical body, the Holy Spirit dwells and animates the mystical body. How does the Holy Spirit animate the art and architecture of a church? So in the early uh, understanding of, under, understandings of church, church architecture, would they just assume that the Holy Spirit was present inside the church building, or did they have to depict that? 
Well, the, you know, the Temple of Solomon, after when it was consecrated, there are all these images or these discussions that the presence of God, you know, came in the church, the spirit of God came in, that, excuse me, in the temple. And then when the Jews worshiped the golden calf or the Israelites worshiped some the wrong God, then the presence would leave and it would be just that plain old empty building again. So the question is, what does it mean to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? You have all your parts and you have all your natural capacities, but if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, that's actually the Holy Spirit becoming a guiding and animating principle. It makes you more loving, more like Christ, more energetic, hmm. better understanding. You think of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like wisdom and piety and knowledge. If the Holy Spirit's dwelling in you, then those things are constantly being reinforced and increased in you. If the Holy Spirit's not dwelling in you, then you're just relying on your own natural capacities, and maybe they're even diminishing as you do the wrong things. And so this revelatory power of the Holy Spirit is really important. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the nature of the church building as Christ, but then what's the role of the Holy Spirit in, say, making icons? It's very important. Mm -hmm. In the East, they say the artist has to pray and fast so they know what God is like. And then when they make an icon, they can reveal God through this artistic endeavor and that the mm. Holy Spirit actually has to guide their hand. So they give their hand over to the Holy Spirit with their, all their human effort. And if you ever tried to make an icon, you know, it, it looks like this awful cartoon, you know, these... Mm -hmm. Icons have a standard form. So you need mastery, effort, energy, all of creation. These icons are made of minerals and rabbit skin glue and eggs and all this stuff. And then the Holy Spirit is supposed to guide your hand and your human effort to allow this board with paint to reveal the face of, of Christ. Wow. As Christ exists in heaven, not just a portrait of the historical Christ. And that's a really high, high calling. And so even if there's not an actual depiction of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was always involved in the process of making even just regular icons and statues of saints and holy men and women. Right. So even if even though you're not seeing the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was a part of that 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 artistic process, regardless. Right. This revelation of God. So the Holy Spirit's compared to the breath. If Christ is the Word, right, it's the content of the Father's revelation, then the Holy Spirit would be the breath. You can't speak a word without breath. And so the breath isn't the content, but it's what carries the content and makes it knowable. Hmm. And so um, it has its own identity, but it is not the same as the content. So when, a, when an iconographer makes an icon and reveals the face of Christ, that's the knowledge of Christ's reality, but it's the Holy Spirit that makes that possible and knowable. So groaning too deep for words. Well, I am excited for you to finish your presentation. Oh my gosh, so am I. So that I can turn it into a Liturgy Guys podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> Once I figure out, it sounds already kind of like I know what I'm saying, but I haven't, do. You haven't do. crossed the T's and dotted the I's yet. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, that does it for Coffee Talk this week. It does? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, we can. Can we have milk and cookies talk sometime? Oh, that That'd would be like be, a late night that. wrap up in a blanket. <laughs> and in the end, we just, we both fall asleep and yeah. just like so, the recording go. Oh, this, is, this is liturgy, guys. We could do it in our NPR voices. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> Hello, we're here to talk about We're sitting liturgy. in front of the fire. <laughs> All right. Thank you and God bless. You've been listening to an episode of Coffee Talk with the Liturgy Guys. Our theme music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. I, I had too much coffee.